so if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Kings 19. If you don't have a Bible, I think they have some in the back. Folks can, uh, you know, if you just raise your hand, they'll grab you a Bible. Today we're going to be talking about prayer. And I want to ask, have you ever felt a little bit discouraged about your prayer life? Right? There's two types of Christians, I think. There's Christians who have felt this way and then who admit to feeling this way, and then there's liars, right? Because we've all felt this way. Just think about it. Does this sound like you? Have you ever been praying and then you're totally distracted? And you almost just can't even sit and focus on what you're praying about. And you think, you know, you're sitting there, you're praying, you're sitting in your chair, it's right before you go to bed, or wherever it is that you pray. And then all of a sudden, this is what I do. All of a sudden, I'm thinking about, how come the Giants are so terrible this year? And then I think to myself, wait, I was just praying. How did I get from prayer to thinking about the Giants? You know, we, we all do this sort of stuff. Or have you ever thought, didn't I already pray this? I pray the same thing every day. This is starting to get kind of boring. Or sometimes I'll even go, you know, a day or two without any sort of serious prayer, and I'll think, dang, I haven't prayed in a while. How is it that I've set myself up that I'm too busy as a pastor to pray? Right? Isn't this what we do? Or when you get into a serious situation, what's your first instinct? Is it to run to the Lord, or is it to try to figure things out? I was listening to the other sermons in this series, and Andrew talked, I think it was last week, about when he was younger, and he went and he had this situation he needed to get to Chicago, and he went and bought this van. Do you remember this story? But I remember him saying the first thing he did was, I'm going to try to figure this out, and he didn't even pray, and the whole thing totally blew up, uh, blew up in his face. So my question is, are we content to live like this, sort of uh, with some of these struggles in prayer? There was a Scottish pastor, I don't think a couple hundred years ago, Robert Murray McShane, uh, he had this great quote. He said, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Prayer is the most important thing that you will ever do as a believer. That is your time with the Lord. And yet, many of us don't give that, that uh, discipline, that time, uh, the attention and the importance that it deserves. Um, a few weeks ago, I think in the first sermon in this series, Andrew said, we want to, in this series, we want to learn how to be strengthened in the Lord. And Brent put this series together, and in the little packet that he gave us, uh, sort of what are the goals and stuff, that was one of the things he had in there, is we want to be strengthened in the Lord. The best way that we can be strengthened in the Lord is prayer. But here's the thing. What if I'm bad at it? Can we learn how to pray? Is prayer just something that when you get saved and you meet the Lord and you're redeemed and you're brought back to God, is prayer just something that you should know how to do? Or is it something that you can learn? I think it is something you can learn. But the question then is, how do we learn how to pray? Where do we go to learn how to pray? So I'll give you an illustration. When I was in junior high school, I was in sixth grade. I had just started at a new school. And I was four foot six, maybe, you know, 70 pounds. I was the littlest kid around, but I wanted to play basketball. So I went to basketball tryouts, and I went to this small Christian school uh, in San Francisco, and there weren't a lot of, you know, my school was 80 kids total, I think. So a bunch of kids, a bunch of the guys went to basketball tryouts, and he had us run some drills, and I was not very good at basketball. And I remember at one point, I shot a layup off the bottom of the rim, and it sort of bounced back, and it hit me, and the coach laughed in my face. Now, at the end of the day, he posted who made the team. Everybody that tried out made the team except for me. 
because I was four foot six, and 70 pounds, and I wasn't even good at basketball. I don't know why I wanted to play basketball. I just, I thought I'd try something new. So, this school had two gyms. There was one upstairs and one downstairs. And so this is what I did. I would go home, and this is like the mid-90s. So this is when John Stockton was playing for the Jazz. And the Jazz were good, and they lost a few years in the finals to the Bulls, Jordan and the Bulls. And John Stockton was my favorite player because he seemed to be one of those guys without a lot of skill. <laughs> you know, he wasn't flashy or fancy. He just did everything right. He was always the littlest guy on the court. Uh, and he had the same haircut that I did back then, you know, the little, little opie part with the thing sticking up out of the back. And so I liked John Stockton because, you know, I thought I could be him someday maybe. And so what I would do is I would watch John Stockton play basketball. I had a little notebook. And I would write down things that he did. Okay, when he shoots, he tucks his elbow, you know? And then I was shooting like this. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to tuck my elbow. So while the other kids were upstairs all my sixth grade year, they were upstairs in the big gym playing basketball and doing practice and having games. I was downstairs doing all the stuff that John Stockton said to do, you know, that I learned from John Stockton that was in my notebook. So then the next year, I went back and tried out for the team again. And then that time, I was the team captain. And it was, yeah, that's right. You wouldn't know to look at me, but I'm pretty good at basketball. <laughs> anyway, um, and it was just from watching somebody who knew how to do it. That's how I got better. I didn't have any coaches. Nobody taught me how to shoot free throws. And then even some of the coaches I had back then weren't that great. I just looked, and I watched, and I thought, okay, I can do that. So the question is then, how do we pray? How do we learn how to pray? We do that by reading scripture. The Bible is full of John Stocktons who can teach us how if we just watch them. And I started thinking about this a few years ago at my church. Um, I was in sort of a turnaround situation and I noticed a lot of people at this church don't really like to pray. And so we started these prayer meetings and then I noticed something that in all my time in the evangelical world and you know, being a pastor and everything, I realized that when we get together and pray, our prayers don't really sound anything like the prayers in Scripture. We pray very different than the way that these guys in Scripture pray. And I think that one of the best things that you can do as you're praying is pray with a Bible in front of you. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to read Hezekiah's prayer. And this is one of the coolest passages in all of Scripture. And Brent was very upset that this was the week, I think, that he was gone because he, he said it to me two or three times. Oh, man, you're lucky. You got the prayer passage. This is such a great passage. Um, it's kind of the pinnacle of this you know, narrative that we're reading. And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to read this prayer, and hopefully what we'll learn is, you know, this, you know we're not tucking our elbows. We're going to learn how to, how to pray by watching and looking at this prayer. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to start, and I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through the passage, and then we'll talk about it a little at the end. So verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. So we're picking up this story now, this narrative, right in the middle of what's been happening. So let me recap real quick if you've missed a few weeks or if you haven't been around um, Brent did a great job, uh, you know, Brent and Andrew did a great job explaining all this stuff. But here's what was going on. Um, Sennacherib was the king of the nation of Assyria. And these guys were brutal and they were bullies. And what they were doing is they were just going around the entire ancient Near Eastern world and they were taking over kingdoms and destroying cities and taking slaves and sending them back to their homeland. And Sennacherib especially was one of the most brutal kings in this era. And 
uh, what's going on is he's already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and sent everybody away. Now he's approaching the southern kingdom of Judah where King Hezekiah has his stronghold of Jerusalem and he's on his way. And I think it was Brent and uh, I, don't, I forget which one of them did this story, but um, he's already sent messengers to the city of Jerusalem and there's this crazy passage in chapter 18 where the messengers from Sennacherib by the way, I taught kings when I was a youth pastor, and I'm so hard to say Sennacherib because I'm used to saying snacks on ribs. That was our joke, right? That was his name. So King Snacks on Ribs, right? So his uh, representatives came, and they were shouting threats and stuff to the wall where the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were listening and were absolutely terrified. And so his whole army is on the way. They're coming. They're going to siege the city of Jerusalem, and they keep sending these messengers. And so when it says the letters from the messengers, that's what he's talking about here. Now, Hezekiah receives the letters of these threats. Sennacherib is demanding uh, action. He's telling Hezekiah, you need to surrender. He's telling all the people in the city, don't worry. You're just going to come to Assyria. Everything's going to be great. But we all know the real truth of what's going on here is he's going to destroy the city. He's going to kill everybody, and he's going to take everything that he wants. Now, this is kind of hard for us to imagine, being that we're so comfortable. Uh, but try to put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. He is responsible for everybody around him. Just think of this stress. You know that feeling when you're really stressed out and your chest feels like it weighs a thousand pounds and your stomach drops, right? That's Hezekiah. I sort of know the stress of having somebody's life in my hands because I took junior hires camping. And every year the bears would come into the campsite and I would have to go chase the bears away and I'm deathly afraid of bears, you know, because have you seen a bear, right? It's pretty big. I'd chase it away with my flashlight. But I'd sit there and I would just be so stressed because there's five tents and I'm in one of them. I'm thinking, oh man, what if a bear gets one of these kids? I'll probably get fired, you just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, Hezekiah has this stress just weighing on him and a, a massacre of his entire population, the kids, the women, the children, everybody, is, is, a, is a real possibility. And every kid you see walking down the street, Hezekiah thinks, oh man, that, that kid might die. Every person, his friends, his family. And here's the thing though, Isaiah has already told him God will take care of this. But you know it hasn't happened yet, so he's still stressed. So he receives this letter in verse 14, and let's look at the rest of verse 14. What does he do with the letter? And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So what he does is he takes the letter and he goes up to the temple. Now the temple in the Old Testament was more than what we say for like our church buildings. The temple was the place where Yahweh, God, told the people, I'm going to reside my presence here in a very special way. And so Solomon built the temple and they had this whole thing and the, the presence of God came down in fire. And like the temple was where God was, you know, he's everywhere, but in a special way. Well, the idea of the temple was changed when we come to the New Testament. While Jesus was on the cross, there's this interesting story the Bible tells us. It's just almost in a passing note. But what it says is there was a curtain in the temple. And so the temple had a bunch of different rooms. And the very back room was called the Holy of Holies. And that was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and God's holy presence was. And there was this big, thick curtain between the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies. And only one guy could go into that room once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so what happened during the crucifixion is that curtain that separated God's presence from the rest of the temple was torn in two. And what that signified was that the Holy Spirit, or you know, that God was unleashing himself in a way that he hadn't in the Old Testament. 
Then if you fast forward a little, you see in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls upon his people. And the idea is that you as a believer, you are the temple of God now. That's what the New Testament says. You have access to God the way that they only did going to the temple in the Old Testament. And so the lesson is, one lesson here for us is, we don't need to go to the temple to approach the temple in Jerusalem or something the way that Hezekiah did. Anywhere we are, we have access to God. When you're on the train, as we're talking about prayer, you're on the train to work, you know, you're in bed, you're at the park, you're in traffic. I hear a lot of people call out the name of Jesus Christ in traffic, boy, I tell you. (laughs) But anyway, in the Old Testament, the presence of God resided in the temple in a a very special way. And so Hezekiah, he wanted to be near the presence of God. And so what he does is he goes up to the temple and he spreads out the letter of threat in front of the Lord. And as I was reading about this, a lot of uh, scholars were saying, well, this was a pagan practice. You'd spread it out so your God could read it, because otherwise if it was rolled up, he couldn't read it. I don't think that's what Hezekiah was doing. I think it was just a symbolic gesture of trust. He's putting it out before the Lord and he's saying, Lord, I can't deal with this. I don't have the army. I don't have the the facility. You know, I can't do it. I need you. And so he spreads out the letter before the Lord. Verse 15. Let's keep going. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth have made heaven and earth. So now he addresses the Lord. Do you guys know, have you ever heard of the Acts prayer model? You ever heard of this? It's like just a sort of a way to pray. There's the address or adoration. There's confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is just a fancy church word to say asking for stuff. It's just, it's just a way to pray. In our culture, though, I've noticed, this is one of the big differences between our prayer and biblical prayer. The adoration, the address part, is the shortest part of our prayer. This is how we pray. Dear Lord, boom, we're done. Then give me stuff, right? There's a lot of give me, you know, this and do this for me. But... In Hezekiah's prayer, this is very different. Let's look at his little section of addressing the Lord. He starts by saying, O Lord. In Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. That's, the, that's God's name. It's God's proper name. And that's pretty important. He's not just saying some generic God figure. He's saying, O Yahweh, God of Israel. So he's calling on Yahweh as the covenant God. He's bringing to remembrance all that God has done for his people as the covenant God. The exodus, the delivery to the promised land salvation from, uh, in judges from enemy after enemy after enemy. You know, he provided for King David. He's thinking of God as the covenant God, all that he's done. Then he says, enthroned above the cherubim. So the cherubim were those two little angels sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant represented God's grace and mercy. So now what he's doing is he's bringing to remembrance, Lord, you've provided a way for us to be saved. You are the gracious and you're the merciful God. You're the, you're the God who constantly forgives our sins. And then he says, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms. So the way that this worked was in the ancient world, they thought of war as really what was going on was there was a war between two nations, but it was a war between the two gods of those nations. And so the most powerful God would win. So there's a bunch of really interesting stuff about this in Samuel where God defeats the Philistine God, our God defeats the Philistine God, Dagon, when they take the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, this is what they thought was happening, though, is that the gods are battling. And so Hezekiah is saying, well, that's not really true because Yahweh is the God that sits above the rest. He's not one of the gods. He is the God. And then he takes it to the extreme. He says, you are the creator. You've made heaven and earth. 
Think about that for a sec. Everything you see, everything he created with just a word. This is a powerful God that Hezekiah is pleading to. And as he looks around creation, he praises God for that. That's why I love that show, Planet Earth. You seen Planet Earth? I love watching this show because I just think, God made some weird stuff. <laughs> and there's, some, there's a fish with a transparent skull so you can see its brain. And I, I want to ask God someday, what's the deal with the brain fish? <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool. None of these other gods made any of this stuff. Our God is the creator God. And so he keeps going, verse 16. So he's addressed God. Then he says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So now he starts to talk to God. And we know that God doesn't have eyes and ears. But God presents himself in Scripture. He presents himself to his people in ways that we can understand. And so Hezekiah is relating back to God on those terms. And what he's saying is, Lord, listen to what Sennacherib is saying. Did you hear what his representatives called out to our people on the wall? So I grew up in a really uh, ghetto elementary school, and I was thinking about this. This is from my elementary school. This is, the, so this is the grown-up version of when a kid in my elementary school would say, did you hear what he said about your mom? Because that was, that was a pretty popular thing. You know, aren't you going to do something about this? He just called your mom fat, you know? This is kind of what's going on. Well, what did Sennacherib say? You can go back and listen to the sermon on uh, 2 Kings 18. But basically, summed up, he had a few points. The first thing he said is, your king can't save you. Don't trust Hezekiah. He's in there telling you that everything's going to be all right, but it's not going to be. Then he said, we're more powerful than all the other gods around, even yours. And then the third and most blasphemous part of the representative's uh, little spiel there, is he said, and by the way, we're here because your God told us to come here. He said, we're here on a mission uh, from Yahweh. And so Hezekiah is bringing this up during his prayer. He's saying to God, did you hear what he said? The reason is because he cares about the name of God. He cares about God's glory. Do you see this? He's not just praying, save me because I'm scared. He's praying, save me, because in doing so, your name will be glorified. It's your name that's at stake here. And so his prayer, and this is important for when we're thinking about, you know, John Stockton learning how to pray, right, from watching people. His prayer is more about God than it is about himself. That's not always how we pray, is it? I'll say, Pastor John, right, most of my prayers are about me. And right now, most of my prayer is about my church plant. Lord, I need people, I need money, I need a job, you know. <laughs> right, this is how I pray. But am I praying about the glory of God the way that Hezekiah did? Not always. I try to, but not always. So let's keep going. Verse 17, let's see what else he says. He says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So next, Hezekiah prays, and he says, look, Lord, they've destroyed a lot of gods already. They've been around. They've destroyed a lot of nations and torn down their temples and burned their gods. The difference was, though, they weren't real gods. They weren't the creator god who made the brain fish and the trees and all this other stuff. They were just, you know, idols made out of wood and stone. So illustrate this, right? Are there any Warriors fans here, I hope? 
We're in the East Bay, right? Warriors fans, you'll like this. Okay, do you remember how confident Cavs fans were coming into the finals? Why was that? Because they had almost, they had lost one game coming into the finals and they were all cocky. But here's the thing, who had they beaten? Right, the Celtics, the Raptors, you know, a bunch of no-name teams. Then they came to the finals and all of a sudden they got Steph Curry and KD and Draymond standing in front of them and things got a little bit tougher. That's kind of the same situation. Sennacherib has gone around, he's destroyed a couple of not even real gods. Now he's coming up to Jerusalem and Hezekiah prays and he says, you know, now you've got the warriors coming. Now you've got Draymond coming. There's no more Celtics here. This is, this is the real deal now. And then the warriors won the final. Okay. Verse 19. So then the last verse we'll read today. And this is the most important verse, maybe in this entire narrative of Hezekiah. This is his prayer. He says, So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand. And this is the reason. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Now he gets to it. But do you see the flow here of his prayer? He starts with who God is. Then he talks about the threat to God's name and his glory. He reminds himself Sennacherib is nothing in comparison. And then he gets to his real request. He says, Lord our God. That's the second time now he's used that covenant language. He's saying, Lord, you have promised to be our God. That's a bold thing to pray. But it's what God wanted him to pray. It's right in line with what God has asked from his people. God has said, I will be your, your God. And you will be my people. And so Hezekiah now is banking on that promise. Lord, our God. He says, save us, please, from his hand. Hezekiah is at the end. He has realized salvation from God is the only option here. Because Sennacherib's army, it's like, I, I think it's like 180,000 guys standing outside the door, is big and he has no chance. And he says, please, he's begging. You can almost hear the desperation and the cries in his voice as he prays this. Think about your own heart for a second. What would you pray in this situation? What are the reasons that you would give? You would say to God something like, probably, Lord, I don't want to die. Right? The, the Assyrians were brutal. Brent talked about this. He did a great job kind of explaining this. But, you know, they took a group of elders from one city and they took them out in front of the entire city and they flayed them alive. Or they would uh, impale people on big sticks and just leave them out to die. This is not just like, oh, you're going to pass to death in your sleep. This is a brutal death that he's facing. And if I was praying, that's probably what I would say, Lord, I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to be flayed alive or stuck with a large stick or whatever. Some of us, the more holy ones, might pray for the people around us. God, I don't want them to die either. Right? But how many of us would sit here and go, Lord, save us because what's really at stake is your glory? That's the reason Hezekiah gives. That's somebody who understands the gospel. That the gospel is all about the glory of God, not just about us. We're very self-centered people. And the, the fall has done this to us. This is why I'm looking forward to heaven, because all that's going to be washed away. And we're just going to be all about God's glory when we get there. But until we do, as we're praying, we need to keep this in mind. We need to pray for God's glory to be made known in the world. So what, um, there's three things that I saw in this prayer here I want to tell you about. Um, and I've seen these in a lot of different biblical prayers. The first one is this. When we read biblical prayers, we see that they're all honest. Have you ever thought about how foolish we are sometimes when we're not 100% honest while we're praying? 
or we're trying to, almost like we're trying to convince ourselves that something's not really true when it is. So the first thing is God made us. He knows everything. So let's just, when we're approaching God, let's be honest with who we are. The second thing, though, is that the adoration, the address part, is longer than the other parts of the prayer. How many of you like that song, Come Thou Fount? Do you guys sing that here sometimes? You know, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a line in there, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Do you know what that means? You ever sung that? In... Anyway, in 1 Samuel 7, God won a battle for his people. And he said, Now lift this big giant stone up on its side. And every time you walk past that stone, remember what I did for you here. And they named it the Ebenezer Stone. That should be a part of our prayer, is these Ebenezer Stones. How often do you pray and just thank God for things that he's done for you, for your church, for your city? That's a big part of it. Why pray this way, though? Because it reminds us who God is. So often we come into prayer without a real sense of who God is. And these long adoration pieces in these prayers really sort of help put that into perspective for us. And then the third thing here that I see in biblical prayer is that even their requests are about the glory of God. Next week I'm teaching at another church. I'm doing a bunch of guest preaching stints, you know, because it's summer and everybody's too lazy to preach. No, I'm just kidding. All the pastors are on vacation. I just put that in there to see if Andrew even listens to the, you know, if I get an email. Um, but anyway, next week I'm teaching, and I'm teaching from Mark 9, where Jesus says all things are possible with God. And I was, I was reading about this. Is that a blank check? where he says, whatever you pray, I'm going to do. No. What he's saying is that when you're really all about the glory of God and you're uh, all about adoring him, you're going to pray for the things he wants you to pray for. And when you're doing that, all things are possible with God. When you get these first two sort of guidelines down that we see in biblical prayer, you're going to get to the end and you're going to say, Lord, save us because I want everybody to know that you alone are God. That's the kind of stuff you're going to pray for. But what's missing from biblical prayers, from these sort of biblical prayers? Stupid and selfish things, right? Um, we don't see things in the Bible where these guys are praying, like, Lord, this is my idea. You better get on board. But, I mean, we don't ever pray like that, but we sort of do. Not on purpose, but really because we're self-centered people. That is kind of how we pray sometimes. So if you have your Bible, I want you to flip over to Acts 4. I want to read you another uh, Another prayer from Scripture. Now, the, the, I'll give you the background for this. What happened was Peter and John, this is just after Pentecost, and they're preaching, and thousands of people are getting saved, and it's a great time. And they get arrested, and they get taken before the Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish elders who were sort of in charge of the religious life of the community. And these are the same people that just a few months earlier had Jesus executed. Okay, so this is a very dangerous situation. And what happens at the end of their little trial is the Sanhedrin lets them go with threats. They threaten them, and then they let them go. So Peter and John, they go back to the church, and this is what happens. Uh, I'm going to be in Acts 4.23. Watch this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they tell the church everything that's going on. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so this was the prayer of the church, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, even the brainfish, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So they're quoting the Psalms there, which is great. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're saying, God, we know you're in control. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you see what they prayed? They didn't even pray, Lord, we don't want to get arrested again. They said, Lord, give us boldness to keep speaking the gospel in these situations. And look at verse 30. They say, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Again, it's all about the name of Jesus. And then verse 31. This never happened in any of my prayer meetings. And when they prayed, the place which with they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer because they were praying kind of the way he wanted them to pray. Isn't that a great story? Here's the thing, though. I don't think that's how I pray. I don't think that's really how a lot of us pray. And so, just sort of, uh, you know, as we're wrapping up here, what I did was, um, if you guys get the study guides, by the way, I wrote the study guide for the week. Um, there's a guy named John Calvin, he was a reformer, and he had a chapter in one of his books called Rules for Prayer. Rules is a really sort of a bad word for him to because it sounds like this is how you have to pray or you're in trouble. But it's just sort of his guidelines for prayer. And so I put those in the study guide, and I think I even have a slide here somewhere. Yeah, pray with the fear of the Lord. There's a few of them here. Um, I'd like you to, with your small groups this week, just talk about this and talk about how you pray. But really what it all boils down to is this. Is your prayer, like I said before, is your prayer more about you or is it more about God? Because when you're praying about you, usually what ends up happening is you're telling God what to do with your life. When your prayer is about God, God uses that prayer to change who you are. And that's what we really want out of prayer, is we want God to change who we are. Tim Keller, uh, a pastor in New York, he did a sermon uh, when I was six years old, I found this, And he was talking about this, and he said, Years ago, a lady came to me and said that for years she had always done mostly petitions in her prayer. So she just asked for things, asked for things. She spent all of her time praying about her problems, and then when she was done with her prayer, she felt even worse. She said, One day I decided to go and spend 80% of my time in adoration and worship before I got to my requests. And she said it amazed me the very first time my life was changed forever. She told me this, because I suddenly realized the reason I worried and got so upset and scared was because I didn't realize how great he was. And by the time I thought about his greatness and his wisdom and all that he had done for me, when it got time for petition, I just said, here, why am I worried? Take it. She gave those needs and they were gone. Adoration, Tim Keller says, is the only thing that will heal us. You see, Jesus died to redeem us and fix us and bring us back into a right relationship with God. That's what his death accomplished. And prayer is our main way as believers to engage that relationship. We get to be in communion with God because Jesus was cut off. What a privilege that is. And it came at a great cost to our Savior. So as the people of God, let's take our prayer seriously. And my hope is that you'll take the study guide and you'll think about this this week. You'll take this 
prayer of Hezekiah home with you, and you'll learn from it, you know, John Stockton style. You'll pray like he did. Take your life, place it at the throne of the Creator, and just say, Lord, you're awesome. Here's my crap, you know. <laughs> Here's my stuff. All right, amen? Let's pray. Lord God, it is amazing that you are the creator of the world. That with your word, you spoke to existence, everything around us. Lord, you made us in your image. It baffles us, Lord, to think about all the things that you've done in Scripture. Think about the way you split the Red Sea, or you, know, you raised up the kings of Israel. You brought the dead back to life through your prophets. The most amazing thing, though, Lord, is that you came and you lived as one of us. You never sinned. You lived the life that we could never live. You died the death that we deserve to die. And you broke the chains of sin and death. Lord, you are an amazing God. You are sovereign in this world. Lord, we ask for forgiveness just when we pray and we think about ourselves more than we think about you. We're thankful, Lord, that your grace covers even that. You've never uh, given up on us. and You're always there when we need you. Lord, this idea that anywhere we are, we have access to your holy presence is amazing. That you're here now in our midst. That your Holy Spirit is, is among us and empowering us, Lord. So we give ourselves to you now. Lord, as each one of us prays this week and pours out our life to you, you know, we just, we just pray that, Lord, in our lives, that your name would be glorified, that you would teach us how to pray like you did the disciples. You're such a gracious, merciful, and a wonderful God. We thank you for that. Amen.